This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuton. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. Well, what a great honor it is for me to be joined today by Tammy Dixon and Jeffrey Carpenter, the award-winning co-founders of Bricolage Production Company, one of the most innovative and forward-thinking theater companies in the world, which just happens to be located here in our culturally rich city of Pittsburgh. While Tammy is Bricolage's creative principal, Jeffrey is the company's artistic director. Tammy specializes in creating intimate, personalized, and embodied immersive encounters. Jeffrey envisions theater not as a passive experience, but as a vehicle for heightened involvement for artist and audience alike. With Bricolage, Tammy and Jeffrey have created numerous memorably unique immersive experiences, including Ojo, Dodo, which was produced in collaboration with the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh, in which the experience was set, and Strata, which was named 2012's Top Production of the Year by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and featured on the cover of American Theatre magazine. Tammy is the writer and director of The Forest of Everywhere, Bricolage's first immersive for children with developmental differences. She also co-created Bricolage's Immersive Encounters program, a bite-sized, sensory-based theatrical initiative developed as a laboratory for training immersive artists and experimenting with participatory storytelling. Jeffrey's work explores dynamic and deep modes of connectivity, placing each audience member at the center of the experience from which everything else spins. In this style, in 2018, he co-created The Clearing. Bricolage's layered works often utilize sensual, dreamlike environments to heighten awareness, stir memories, and promote deeper participation among audience-goers. Together, they also produce, write, and direct the highly acclaimed and popular Midnight Radio series, now entering its 10th season. That's just the tip of the iceberg of all that has been offered up by Bricolage, and so it is for me a great delight to have Tammy Dixon and Jeffrey Carpenter on Storybeat today. Welcome to you both. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah. What an introduction. It, thanks. Your whole life story's just been laid out for you. Wow, we're amazing. <laughs> And you get a a side of fries with that, right? Please. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your backgrounds. What caused you to ever get into this thing called theater? Where did this happen? How did this happen? Well, I guess I'll go first. Uh, Well, you know, I mean, theater has been, I guess, in my blood since I was a kid uh, from, from... uh, grade school, I was in uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technical Color <laughs> Dream. Oh, really? I, yeah, I, I could sing a few bars. But, <laughs> oh, please. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you let loose any time you feel like it. <laughs> uh, and from then on, I was pretty much hooked uh, as an actor, first and foremost. And then, you know, I ended up, you know, 
kind of going away from it. And then in high school, uh, I was part of the Woodland Hills kind of debacle. Um, <laughs> so you're you're a Pittsburgher then? You're, I am a Pittsburgh, born and born and raised here. Uh, grew up in Edgewood. Okay. And then in I guess it was '82 or '83, the uh, all the school districts merged. And ended up at Swissville High School, which right. no longer exists as a high school. Um, it's all one big Woodland Hills uh, school. But my my teacher, my my homeroom teacher was the art teacher Dan Rickabon. Okay, who I'll give a shout out to because he he came in uh, one morning swinging a rope and uh, and uh, <laughs> asked me if I wanted to be in uh, try out for the school musical Oklahoma. <laughs> And uh, it was pretty much history after that. Uh, that would be a true cattle call. That was a, <laughs> that was good. Yeah, the the common and the or what is it the uh, whatever it is the the the, the common and the uh, farmer the common the common and the, and the farmer, farmer should be should friends. be friends. Yeah. Yes, of course. Aww. So we became friends, Mr. Rick and I, and uh, ended up in that, and then all the school musicals from there on out, and ended up going up to school in New York. Started a small small school on Stagnant Island called Wagner. Stagnant. Wagner College, which was really known for uh, musical theater. Uh, a great school in that you got to really get your hands dirty right away, mm-hmm. and they produced incredibly. A lot of it was a pipeline to Broadway. A lot of the the actors there went on uh, with great Broadway careers. Um, And then uh, I decided that I really was more interested in in acting than I was in musical theater. I was a double threat. (laughs) I just wasn't the triple threat. You've uh, become more than a triple threat. A threat. A threat. A creative threat. Uh, so yeah, and then I, I transferred into traveled the world, and then transferred into um, NYU, where I got my degree and in theater. In theater, and in well, I have a I, I have a degree in drama. Drama. <laughs> yeah, I, I know many people that have degrees yes. in drama that don't know anything <laughs> Just about. Look the outside. Yes, <laughs> it's very dramatic. That's right. <laughs> so I have a degree in drama, and then I spent the next ten years sort of as an itinerant actor up and down the East coast mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and kind of realized what I, I didn't want. I, what I realized is I was creating, I, I spent a lot of my uh, early career working on uh, new work and it was something I was just sort of inherently drawn to creating I, was, the new work yourself or working on other people's new work, working on other people's new work. And, uh, through that experience, I realized that I was much more interested in being on the creative ground floor. And as an actor, you're really the last person invited to the creative That's table. true. You have to make it yourself. And uh, Which is what you guys do. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like, you know, ultimately that's what, what drove me to the, the reality that um, the best way to do that was to uh, create my own uh, my own thing. And I always sort of wanted to come back to Pittsburgh. So um, it's funny. I left here thinking I'll never be come back. Uh, and You and me both. And me. And, here, and, and you too. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with it. No, no. no. Pittsburgh is a great place to do this kind of thing. It really is. I, I don't have any regrets about coming back. Well, that's so. good. And, and, and Tammy, where? Um, I'm originally from Cleveland. Don't shoot. Cl- close enough, but we, <laughs> so, we won't hold it against you. Yeah, thank you. you. But, you know, I love Cleveland. It's the place where I um, I learned 
everything about theater, you know, um, where I fell in love with it. Um, I they've got lots of great theater. They have a lot of great. I mean, we had the oldest regional theater in the country with the with the Cleveland Playhouse, and I was really blessed as a child. You know, um, I was one of those precocious kids that was always performing everywhere in the grocery cart. You know, telling jokes to the people in line. You know, dancing around. My grandmother was a pianist at a dance studio, so mm. I got free dance lessons from the time I was two. Mm. So I was always moving, and I. I the truth is I just never wanted to be me. I wanted to always be somebody else. It was just more comfortable for me and to, to do that. And have you become someone else? <laughs> I'm trying to get back to me. <laughs> you know, I have become a lot of people, and I'm finding that it's so much um, more peaceful just to be, <laughs> just to be myself, you. Sure. you know? And I think it takes a it took a long time. It took me four decades to really but come how, around to that. How wonderful is it that you have the ability to go and be someone else yeah, for a little while? Yeah, I mean, it saved my life to do that, you know? Um, I saw... I, I was good at school, you know, thank goodness. I went to public schools in Cleveland. I was good at school and um, went to um, a, a school for smart kids, and they took us on a field trip, and I saw a, a play with kids acting in it, and it was at the Cleveland School of the Arts, and I said, that's where I want to go. And so third grade, I auditioned to go to that school, and in fourth grade, I, I got in. I spent the next nine years at that school. Mm. Um, it transformed my life. I saw my first professional play in the fourth grade at the wow. Cleveland Playhouse, the effects of gamma rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds, and it changed wow. my life because I was able to see myself on stage. I saw um, a, a mother with two daughters. That was my family, mm. you know, um, and I saw pain on stage but you know that that darkness wasn't run from on the stage it was it was really brought to light and it it and it also allowed me to see adults in a new way i never saw adults perform before and i didn't think it was something they did you know to me adults were like kind of sad you know serious serious hard working f- you know the weight of the world on their shoulders full of troubles um and you know pa- in pain and i just that's one of the reasons why i wanted to to be a, something other than myself because what I saw, you know, didn't make me excited about the future. And so... Um, so when, even as a young person, you were looking down the road at what a screwed up place the mm, world can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was, you know, it was very present in my in my immediate environment. Mm-hmm. And um, theater was an escape for, for me. And so I spent all my time there. And, you know, nobody in my family went to college. It wasn't even something that we thought about, talked about. You know, there wasn't a lot of communication in in my household. And so I got communication through theater. I got to say other people's words and, you know, beautifully, you know, learn about humanity because people write about people. People write about relationships with people. And, you know, I think acting is the, you know, is sort of anthropological, the study of of people in relationship to each other and to their environment. And um, And you're guaranteed responses aren't you mm, you know oh gosh I I wish we weren't sometimes you know <laughs> um, but yeah we react to each other you know we bounce off each other we we are either you know deflecting oh, I, each other so let me be clear I meant in the theater when you have lines oh you're guaranteed a response yes in life you're not general you're right you know generally um, the playwright writes the two characters talking to each sure. other, you know, or sometimes the monologue, you know, the soliloquy to the world, you know, help me. You know, I think that's what we're all saying, you know, help me in, in some way. Um, and the theater did that, you know. I, um, you know, 
my ambition was just to be funny, you know, just to to have fun and, and to be silly with my friends. Were you a funny kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that was part of how I survived, you know. Um, were you, I went to were a lot the class class. I was. It was part of survival. You know, I went to a school where a lot of people didn't look like me, and um, part of me trying to fit in was to make them laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, to make them like me. You know, that's the story of my life. Like me, like me. <laughs> Let me show you how how many ways you could like me. Kind yeah, of thing. I think that's the way it is for a lot of people in the theater. Is <laughs> yeah, it not? Absolutely. The well, there's that famous uh, Lawrence Olivier Dustin Hoffman conversation when. You know, it's, you know, why do you do it? Why do you do it? And he says, look at me, 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 look at me. Gosh, if that, if there was some, if that was the name of a book I wrote, the name of the book. Look at me, look at me. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to be seen. I wanted to know that I mattered. And I think that when I saw that play in the fourth grade, I saw my life on stage, and I and I thought, well, I must matter somewhere if someone's going to write about me in some way. And I and I think that's so important that people understand how much they matter. And in this world, we, we can be shown a lot of different things, and not always that. Um, so. I had this wonderful, amazing um, series of teachers at the Cleveland School of the Arts. Um, I'm definitely shouting that place out. It is my alma mater, my home, my birthplace. Um, and this one of my teachers, Jody Maley, she thought I should go to acting school. You know, she thought I saw, saw something in me and thought I should. And, and so she got the application from Carnegie Mellon and she filled it out and um, she was like, your audition date is this day. So me and a couple of friends, made a trip over to Pittsburgh. I, did, I had no picture, no resume. I, At what I, age? Um, I was 16. Um, I had a monologue and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't prepared for this. I looked around at all the other kids that were there, and they had, like, headshots. I didn't even know what a headshot was, you know? And I did my monologue and a half, and um, um, uh, a piece from A, My Name is Alice, and a half a Shakespeare monologue, Queen Catherine from you, Henry VIII. Do you VIII. remember who you auditioned for? Yes, yes. Um, Barbara Mackenzie Woods and Don Wadsworth. Mm. Um, and I left thinking, you know, I don't really fit in there. You know, I don't, that's, I, obviously I don't have all of the tools in my toolbox to be a part of that community. And we went back to Cleveland, and I didn't really think about it until a letter came in the mail, and that letter changed my life. Um, you where, know, where would we be without supportive teachers? Oh, mm. gosh. I mean, that's where it really begins. Yes. Somebody recognizes something in you. You may have that spark within you, and unless you're extremely special, no. somebody else has to kind of give you a little bit of a Yeah, push. or unless, I mean, it just wasn't part of the the, the fabric of my family to to think in that way. So mm-hmm. I needed that. Mm-hmm. I needed somebody to reach their hand. I needed someone not to just reach their hand out, but to like do it for me in a lot of ways, you know, to show you, to show me, to put me there, to place me there. Cause mm-hmm. I wasn't going to force my way into a space that I didn't feel like I didn't even first of all know about and then feel like, nah, I just not like them. You so, know? so when you started to actually do, you did it here in Pittsburgh, right? You, you started to really do work is that what you were... um i went to carnegie mellon i okay. i also say on the first day of class i asked to leave because i again i was just culture shocked and you know i'd not i was so scared you know what i've come to realize how fearful i i, I always have been you hmm. know um 
And I was just so scared of not fitting in. Nine years of one school, I didn't have to make friends. It was just, this was a big family. You just are there and you're a part of it all. I I came here and and I just was placed into this world that was so very different from my home, surrounded by people that were so incredibly different, people from all over the world that were so incredibly different from, from me. And I didn't see a way in and, and I and I asked to leave on the first day. So this is interesting to me because this is part of what I consider to be the whole process, your whole life's process. Mm. What did you do to, what happened to cause you to overcome that? Well, I went to the head of the department and I said, I, I don't think I belong here. And she said, oh, Tammy, why don't you try it for one more week? And she was this English woman, Liz Orion. I was going to say she's from Georgia, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I love a challenge because I'm one of those people that are like, don't tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. You know, I have this <laughs> duality in me that, you know, I need that um, challenge. And so that was a challenge. And so I said, OK, I can I can try for another week. And, you know, somewhere in that week, I realized um, while I may not have the um, look that some people have, and I, and I may not have the clothes or the family support, you know, I have something. This is what I'm supposed to do with my life. You know, I'm, I want to be on stage, and um, I have that. And I knew that that, that was enough and that I could, I could fit in. I don't want to say the word compete, but it is a competitive space Definitely. that we occupy. I could compete, and I, I could thrive. If I, if I really just um, you know, spent time not thinking about the things that I don't have, but thinking about things that I do have, and which was this, this gift of, of storytelling, this gift of, of orating, this gift of speaking, this gift of um, saying text and connecting, and, you know, this ability to, to act. You know, I don't know that, why, but that's what I, you know, I just felt that's what I wanted to do and can do. And so I, I thrived, and I left Carnegie. Mellon, um, I graduated and, you know, you know, when you're at that school, you sort of never leave that sort of safe bubble of that, of that, of that community. And I didn't really know what Pittsburgh was. I didn't really experience Pittsburgh in a real way. And so I kind of left, um, you know, middle fingers ablaze, like I'm never coming back, you know, also I'd grown up in this Rust Belt community. And so I thought there's more out in the world, you know, and no matter where you go, there you are. So wherever I went, I was just going to be me, this well, Rust Belt so, kid. Well, so the world is very fortunate that you found your thing, mm. even though you were <laughs> resisting it at first, mm. which I think is a common thread, by the way, that resistance to what we know how to do. We just, at first, we don't know it mm. until something triggers to say, yeah, this is what I should be doing. And especially in the arts, yeah. w- which most parents want to dissuade you from. Yeah, there's no I, money in no, it. Right. I didn't have right. anyone dissuading me from it, but not, But I also didn't have anyone pushing me Push, towards sure. in any direction. And I don't think it was like I was resisting my my talent or, or what I was think I was supposed to do. I was resisting the, the big, scary world. And you know, that's what scared me the, the most. Would you say that the majority of the best work you've done has been the stuff that's most scary to you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's nice to be comfortable sometimes but you don't really grow too much when you're in that warm cozy space of comfort you get to relax you get to rest and we need that you know we need that space to to really regroup and to heal but um really you're in you got to get in the arena okay so 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 let's use that as a great opportunity to springboard into bricolage Mm -hmm. which i think is exactly that you do things that are unique unusual 
different. Certainly, they're they're pushing envelopes. They're mm-hmm. um, they're giving the world something we ha- an experience we have not seen before. Okay, so bricolage. The word itself sort of means making mission. artful use of what's at hand. Okay, okay. <laughs> so so your your mission, so to speak, is to go out and find things that are at hand and make things with that. Is that the mission? Well, I, I think that that is that is uh, our that is the way we approach the work that we do. It's not necessarily the thing that, that, um, it's, it's It's not always literal. Our process is to utilize what's at hand. But I I think that what's at hand can mean a lot of different things for us, obviously. And, you know, I think that, um, from a process standpoint, you know, I mean, we, we have resolved to always be beginning, (laughs) Which is that's interesting. Yeah, which you know is, you're always reinventing the wheel, and and I think mm-hmm. that that is our greatest strength. It's also a, a challenge for our staff and uh, and a lot of the you know the people that are trying to pigeonhole us as one thing or another. But it's not a weakness at all. Well, we it's just difficult. It's just difficult, and and it is it is hold to the difficult because you know I think that that is where we. Uh, challenge ourselves the most to come outside of the the traditional boxes we put ourselves in as artists and and you know i think that that is what has led to our greatest successes uh strata is a perfect example of that when we went into that we really had some general ideas of 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 what we wanted to explore tammy and i uh as we've you know, explain that have really come up as actors uh, in traditional classical training programs. And, you know, and then getting a taste of that, you know, sort of what that meant from a professional standpoint in the regional circuit and, uh, and, 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 you know, well-made plays where all the decisions are made for you as an audience member and you come in and, you know, the, the, the question of what is it we're trying to uh, get f- out of our audience? I mean, you know, this this notion of, oh, when the audience leans forward in their seat, mm-hmm. we want them to lean forward in their seat. Or stand forward. Well, stand forward. I mean, of your stuffy stand forward. Yeah, and I, I think, well, I mean, for, for us, uh, traditionally speaking, you know, that, that notion that, that this is a social art form, you know, it's definitely from a from a creative standpoint. What starts as a you know uh, one person alone in their room, you know, writing uh, a, a play ends with with you know the most social uh, grouping of artists from visual to you know performative. And but but from an audience standpoint, we we started to be very dissatisfied with that with that relationship. Uh, and, uh, you know, f- from the, the fact that the audience, you know, you're sitting in the dark after all next to a stranger that you never really talk to. Um, but there is this sense of the monolithic nature of an audience, you know, that they, it's a thing, you know, and we talk about that as actors, we come off stage, or, oh, that audience was, Cause you, know. you get to compare audiences. The audience only gets to compare it to itself. And mm. that's right. 
That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, in fact, we were at the theater last night, and you know, it's a Thursday night audience. We call them, you know, like there's a little sleepier, a little sleepier, a little like oh, you know, still in the I work still, week. Yeah, still in the work. Still got to get home to to the next morning, get up for work, and and so there's a you know there's a there's a characteristic of an audience, um, and then the other the other phenomena is you come off stage and. You know, the audience is waiting for you in the lobby and they say, oh, you were great. You were this. You were that. Um, you know, the set was this. The set was great. You know, and we, we began to really think about how do we break down this homogeneity of an audience uh, experience? Uh, and, you know, so Strata was our answer to that question. Okay. I mean, we really started about like well how what if we gave each audience member a totally different experience hmm. and then brought them back together and 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 watched them sort of piece together this thing so they couldn't they couldn't bounce off whether you know cuz a lot of times people don't know what they think mm-hmm. and so they look to each other and say mm-hmm. well you know I, you know, I thought what he thought or, you know, another phenomenon is when you're, you know, you, you've been in an audience where one person laughs and it gives permission to, for, for sure. everybody to laugh. And then all of a sudden, so you they know, learn their behaviors from each other instead of what they're naturally feeling. And often it's hard for individuals to identify their feelings because we don't want to be responsible for those feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't like this. But everyone else seems to like it. So I, something must be wrong with me if, if I don't like it. You know, like, how do we get people back to themselves and away from connecting how they feel with what everybody else is, L- is Less feeling? peer pressure and more individual thinking. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's scary for, for people. Sure and it is. And scary for audiences. Because and, and when you're in a crowd, you want to be a part of the crowd. Absolutely. We want to fit in. You do you know, want to fit we in. We go back to that. But I think our process began a lot earlier and has organically grown over the years we didn't we didn't jump into this with this idea in in mind and and well we always wanted as my bio so eloquently expresses that we wanted to uh create a height this heightened sense of involvement uh and you know for us you know for me like you know early memories of going to the zoo and getting on the train and 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 going around and 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 sort of those things that happen on the side of the the hillside, you know, when you're on the train looking off and, and uh, these little, you know, scenarios play out, it, it stuck with me from a very early age. And it was something that I was like, well, wow, if we could, if we could sort of get back to that, like, how do we create uh, an experience for the audience that isn't so by rote? You know, mm-hmm. this is how we go in. You know, we we spend our you know we get our tickets. We mill about in the in in the lobby uh, and until we go in, and then the lights go out, and then then the the facade starts to to happen. But and we're always us. observing as an audience member. You're always observing. You're not really a part of it. There is that fourth wall that that separates us. Sure. And so, you know, when we talked about when when we. You know, all of our birth of the company has just been born organically out out of one thing from another. So, you know, when I came on board to Bricolage, it was early days, and the and the company was a, a nomadic company doing one show a year, and every year they'd have to 
you know, remind the community, here we are, remember us from 52 weeks ago when we did this show and, you know, that, and, and then we were up for three weeks and then we're, we're down and then we do the process all over again. And so, you know, we were continuing on in that way and then a disaster struck um, where the, where a project we had in mind that we raised money for, that we were on the way to do, fell apart right in front of us. Mm. And the worst thing that could happen was that we had to, we couldn't do that project. Um, and we had to return the money to the foundations. And they don't like that because they've already, you know, written all of the reports. Sure. And, you know, you know. It makes them look bad. Yeah, it's just bad. And so we were given an opportunity if we had a small window of time. Can you write another proposal in a week and we can see if we can adjust that funding to so that you can keep it for a, a different project so we scrambled and it and and that disaster gave Jeffrey and I this opportunity to say what was problematic about the way we were doing things before and how do we want to do things now and and what we thought was like well it's really hard to remain in top of mind of people and to become a presence on the landscape if you're only around for 3 weeks out of the year very difficult and so we thought well, let's take that same amount of money that we would get to produce one show and see if we can spread it out over a 6 month period and that with one show or multiple shows so this this birth this something we called the stage reading performance series where we would give a group of of artists a week and whatever they can come up with in a week with this script, um, they would present over two nights for free for an audience. And we'd have like a party. We'd have wine and cheese and you'd come and you'd you'd see this this reading or staged reading. And sometimes they were full full on productions, whatever they can come up with in a week. And sometimes they were sitting in seats and just, you know, singing through a, you know, a, an opera based on loosely based on Jaws, you know, and what that <laughs> and at the end of that six months the audience would decide what show they wanted. They would vote, and they would decide on what show they wanted to see taken to full, full production nice, next season. So um, we were able over that six months to do a variety of pieces, anything from Aristophanes to Stephen King, you know. Um, we were able to, to, to help our audience... Um, be flexible like we want it to be. We weren't just going to do new plays. We weren't just going to do classics. Uh, we weren't just going to do straight plays. We were going to do musicals too. We are dynamic individuals and we are two separate people. Um, although some people don't think that. They think we're like the same thing and, and, and think the same and talk the same, whatever. The, the terrible two-headed monster. Yes, that, that is, yes. Um, but we were able to flex our creative muscles and give a... You know, instead of 10 artists in one show, 100 artists in six different experiences, the opportunity to play and to risk their creative necks. And it, it introduced us on the landscape over a longer period of time. It connected us to our audience in a way that we weren't connecting before. We gave them some agency. We gave them a seat at the creative table. Mm -hmm. You tell us what you want to see. And inevitably, they picked the, the most difficult piece of the season. Of course season. they did. Yeah. And, and dare I say that that was probably, guessing, was the first quote-unquote participatory experience where the audience was a part yes. of it. Yes, because early on, you know, I came on board and, you know, we were running this company t together. We met I, while I was in New York. He was here. We did long distance for a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I came here with no experience of any business acumen at all. I was, I'm a theater 
you know, I'm a theater You mean geek, they didn't train you, know? you in business at CMU? No, 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 no. Not at that time. I think they've changed they, some they stuff. They do. But they do. no, they didn't at that time. And so I read this book called Mission-Based Management, and it, it gave us sort of this foundation of, um, of how we would spring forward. And it said, list 10 reasons why you are different from all like other organizations. And we could not list one. Wow. <laughs> You know, we were like, well, we do plays. No, a lot of people do plays. We do new plays. No, there's a company that does new plays. Okay, we're husband and wife. No, there's a husband and wife team already on the landscape here. You know, nothing. <laughs> and so that became like, ah, what can we do? And so that was sort of this driving force. How are we different? You know, what are we doing that's not already here? And it it, it was the, it sowed the seed for um, all of the choices that we would then make. And, you know, we've always, like Jeffrey said, you know, the mission of Bricolage was always a heightened sense of involvement for the audience. Mm-hmm. So the audience has always been incredibly important. So if they're so important, why do we ask for their money, put them in the dark, and make them clap for us when we're done? You know, can there be a different relationship? And so over the last, you know, 15 years that I've been in, involved in, uh, 16, 17 years that the company has been around, this has been what we've been thinking about. What is our relationship to the audience? If they are that important, if they're so crucial to the scenario, to the equation of, of, of performing arts, what can we do to get closer to them? How can we connect with them in a deeper way? And everything we've done has been in response to that. And so our programming can look very disparate from the outside. You can go, well, they do something called wordplay, and then they do midnight radio, and then they do immersive theater. Mm-hmm. Well, they're just crazy. They just do too many things. But the thread running through all those pieces are is our audience mm-hmm. and how we're connecting to them. And do you, I'm assuming you do some sort of... Um research in terms of what the audience is actually responding to and you have a pretty good idea of what the audience is responding to at this point i assume yeah i mean i think that you know our our uh post-show surveys uh you know are very detailed in fact we we adopted a you know and what we call an intrinsic impact survey um which is you know an idea that was developed through um a study uh that was manifest in a book called Counting New Beans, where we're basically looking at everybody wants to know about the economic impacts of art, you know, but what, what are what are the intrinsic impacts? Um, and so we are really interested in how we are actually impacting people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found that really uh, immersive theater is the, the sort of what we're really driving toward now uh, as a future uh, and that is work that really is about um, working with the audience, for the audience, about the audience. Um, well, you guys are on the cutting edge of exploding everything that we've ever known about theater. I mean, from mm. the Greeks forward, it's never been, other than, you know, bread and circuses with Shakespeare, where they were throwing things at the performers, which I guess they still Ooh. do to a certain extent. Uh, did I just give you an idea? Yes. <laughs> Throw things at the at the performers. Um, I, I like that idea. It just depends what it is you're throwing. I mean, that's not, that's been done. I mean, circuses and and sure. sideshows that that happens. There is a participatory. I mean, we ha- one of my favorite things. We had a dunking booth at our at our fundraiser, and that's what I wanted for years. And so that you know, there we 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 sort of got into that throwing things thing, <laughs> you know. But um, you can. 
we we now because we have an incredible staff of of people working alongside us at, at Bricolage, we're doing these you know intrinsic impact surveys and fancy things. But you know how the audience feels. You, you, like you don't need a survey to know the the the, the tone and 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 the the tenor of the audience after a show. You know when something's working. Have you gotten pretty good at telling when somebody's BSing you after a show? Oh, yeah. You know when somebody's yeah. just, just glad-handing. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's the way it's set up. And what is I set think up that, that And I also think that there's not a lot of honesty mm. uh, that is – that we don't, we don't have a system that is, is um, built for healthy – criticism and critique and conversation around oh and that's getting much worse and it's getting much yeah. worse we can't um, have so discourse. we can't really say what we really think about things well i i teach 18 to 22 year olds every day that's what i do for a living right mm-hmm. i teach screenwriting over here at point park and what we're seeing and we have a generation right now that everybody's everybody's good nobody can be criticized and it's very strange how you try to get criticism in on someone that doesn't want to be criticized yeah, and that's what you're probably seeing to a certain extent. Well, and we found that you know it's through work with the audience, especially as an actor. I mean, you learn a show in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. There's no other way to learn it. Um, you can make all the decisions you want, but until that audience is in the room and you're you're really starting to learn mm-hmm. the show with an audience, that that is the best teacher. And I think that. So, you know, with our immersive work, for example, uh, one of the things we do is we bring in an audience the very first day of rehearsal Mm. often. Really? First day of rehearsal? Very first day of rehearsal because it is so intimate and because, you know, your scene partner often and, you know, you you had mentioned that the playwright usually gives you, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the the, uh, other actor on stage dialogue to respond to your, you know, this in this case, you know, a lot of times the the scene partner is the audience member themselves so we want to first of all understand what it's like for an audience member coming in there to an unknown situation and the only way to do that is to get an audience involved from the very beginning that is very interesting and and then we begin to learn i think that 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 uh, that's another thing that came out of the stage reading performance series where we learned how quickly we could um, get better. Mm. I think that there's so often this this feeling of, oh, you know, we want to keep the audience out of the studio. We want to keep them away. We're not ready to show what we're well, working on. That's the tradition. On. Yeah. And it's this studio practice where we enter into this, you know, safe environment and we get to ask all the tough questions and have all the fun, really. <laughs> and then we, you know, polish it up and and then we put it in front of an audience. And we were thinking to ourselves, well, listen, this is our favorite part of the the process is rehearsing where we get to ask all these questions and try different things. And so why aren't we letting the audience in on that? Uh, and, and so how can we do that? So the so, audience is shaping your show along with you. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to respect the audience. I mean, we cannot just respect them for the money that they pay for the ticket and their presence in the, in the seat. Perhaps they have something more to, to give. And, this is a an encounter that we're that we're creating. Um, it's it's a heightened encounter, you know. 
Um, but it is an encounter, and so you need the honesty and the, um, the trust of the other person to um, reveal something, All right, so create something new. What we haven't discussed, even though it's kind of obvious, and maybe it's too obvious, is that what is immersive and participatory, and how does that, what shapes, what kind of shapes does that take? Um, what What is it so that the, our listeners know what yeah. we're talking about? Well, I think there's a lot of people that um, use that. It's a buzzword right now, sure immersive theater. And so there are a lot of different ways that people go about defining that. And, and we have our, our, our own definition of it. And I think we say um, it's we put the audience at the center and we build the world around them, which they can explore. Hmm. You know, but that takes different forms, obviously. Um, and the the big, the 101 thing that we would say where we start is, who is the audience in this show? Uh, and a lot of work, uh, whether it's, um, you know, uh, you know, I think that the work that's most successful for us is when the audience understands who they are in the experience. So we have to cast them. How do you do that? How do you cast the audience? It's in it's in various ways. Uh, Dodo, for example, we created a uh, an organization called the National Self Preservation Society, and you were. You, you, you'll have to forgive me. I, I, I felt like an idiot half the time. I, I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. But I giggled. At least three quarters of the way <laughs> through Dodo, and I felt like, what kind of, what is wrong with me? And I wasn't Nothing. trying to laugh; I just couldn't help myself. Good. So that just the beginning with the national. What did you say? Is it what? I can't the National Self Preservation Society. <laughs> I, just, I just started laughing. Yeah, and and there is a, there is a sense of of humor there, and and ultimately the we cast the participants <laughs> as donors. Uh, they didn't quite know what they were donors for, uh, and that was part of the experiences to sort of uh, a, a self-revelatory process where you are asking these questions as you're going through. Okay, I'm a donor, but what am I going to be? Uh, are they going to take a an organ, or you know, <laughs> at some point, or? You know, and and you realize that you're actually a, a donor in this donor process by w- which, you know, at the end of the day, you find out that uh, y- you are, you know, basically you are the specimen, you know, uh, <laughs> that uh, is being um, processed in this scenario. <laughs> uh, and that took place, of course, at the... Um, Carnegie Museums of Art and Natural History. Which, which was just a spectacular mm. thing to do. And and by the way, it was, you know, I'm a little slow in the uptake sometimes, and it was at least two or three days later when, when, I, when the word dodo just hit me as to what this was <laughs> all the way. It was like, oh, my goodness. Um, uh, how did you manage? You clearly could not have rehearsed for days and days and days in Carnegie Museum. So how did you arrange that? What was how, what was that process like? Well, uh, that was a two-plus-year process of, uh, you know, first of all, identifying the decision-makers over there and then convincing them to let us do things over there that nobody's been allowed to do. No, and, and really, like, you've got people running around in the... With all this multi-million dollars worth of art, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. I mean, there's some funny stories around that, but um, it was definitely a um, 
an experience where the mission of that organization really um, is to, um, you know, collect specimens and then preserve those sure. things, right? And so when you talk to, it depends on who you talk to, right, over there, you know, from the registrars who's, who's you know, frankly, if they had their way, nobody would ever come in there because, you know, their goal is to do no harm, you know? So anytime these these works of art are pulled out of storage and placed in the light, they're degrading. Sure. And so there's this sense of uh, mm-hmm. danger for them anytime these things are moved or, you know, displayed. And and they also have an onstage and a backstage, mm-hmm. which we got to go see, yeah. which blew my mind. So, well, and and often, you know, that's that's the story, right? They they are spending so much time articulating and engineering the um, pr- presentation of these artifacts, right? Uh, that you know the the normal or sort of the average everyday encounter with them in in the style of the museum can be very off-putting or or you know for us going to the museum and the gallery experience you know the team that we put together with gab cody our lead writer and and sam turek uh our uh creative partner in these these things you know when we when we started um it took us we did a year of a listening tour through the museum before we even how many times well, oh, no, we just we a we, listening tour would mean that we um, interview everybody we, we can get access to. Uh, it, working at the museum, or yes, working at the museum. So we're not interested in um, laying our idea of something on top of something that already exists. Right. That's why it takes so much time. Um, because we're revealing things that are already there mm-hmm. and we're exposing things that people don't get, often get to see. And we're, we're taking a traditionally curated experience like traditional theater, very curated. You know, all the decisions are made for the audience before they get there. You're just observing. Or what Jeffrey was saying, like they get to see what 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 people want them to see. It's very curated, and we're sort of distressing that. We're turning it inside out, and we're we're seeing the seams, and we're revealing things. That kind of work um, doesn't just happen overnight and takes trust, and trust isn't something you can buy. You have have to to earn it. You have to earn it, and you have to work for it. So these projects take so long because we don't waltz in there and say, here's, we have an idea, and we're going to do this thing called Dodo. We wait until what is supposed to be done there reveals itself to us after asking a lot of questions talking to people from people in security to people in maintenance to people in the registrars to people in in um the curators and administratively as well we want to see what the story is of this space do you consider that that this um build up process do you consider that to be a part of your art yeah. Oh, oh definitely. Oh, yeah. So you remind me very, very much of Christo. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Because Christo spends years and years and years trying to get permission mm. to do the crazy, unusual things. Amazing. And then what he does, which is what you do, so that's why you really are parallel, is he, the whole point of his art, which I think is really much the point of yours as well is you go to a place that is familiar to you and never, ever see it again the same way. 
You know, that was one of the goals. Exactly. That was one of the goals of the, of the museum. How can people interact with the museum in a new way? In a way that well, that's certainly what they were after, and I think that that was something that we went in. You know, we had uh, you know usually we we come up with a, a set of you know preliminary questions or even words sometimes mm-hmm. that we are you know sort of um, exploring, and then through that experience. So for for you know one of the things with the, with the uh, museum itself was this question of access you know that was one where we can had like you go we had four four a words really what it came down to was access authority we started actually with the word authenticity and you know that question of authenticity when you talk about art or when you talk about a specimen an artifact uh what what makes it authentic and there's a word uh with the museum's uh on the natural natural history side, that is, it's it's the word holotype, and uh, we toyed with the idea at one point that was our working title. Uh, what, what, is a hol- what is holotype? So a holotype mm-hmm. is the definitive specimen, and it's what every scientist is hoping to write the paper on the definitive specimen. I so see. It's, from which all others will be... Got it. And so, it's for example, the, yes. the Carnegie Museum has the jawbone of the T-Rex. Or, uh, and so any jawbone that's found out in the field, they have to bring it to the Carnegie Museum <laughs> really? to, to authenticate it. Uh, through that definitive specimen. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're talking about art and the definitive, uh, you know, the most authentic piece of art, and, and there's whole careers Whatever that are that designed is. around this question of of authenticity, and people get paid a lot of money to, to say whether something's authentic oh, or not. Oh, f- for sure. And so this whole question of what is real... You know, this whole question of reality. And, and so some of the most interesting things were when, when we were um, doing our, our listening tour was was uh, interviewing the, the conservators and the, um, you know, the people that were actually in charge of. So they, for one example is they're putting together the woolly mammoth uh, and there there's a whole school of thought on. You know, there's the real bones, the bones that they have, and then there are the bones that are missing. And so they have to authenticate or they have to uh, replicate these these missing pieces. And so they have to, you know, their thought school of thought, the current school of thought over there is that they they want to do that in a way that doesn't um, make it so um, indistinguishable that you the, the, the viewer would think. That, so they, they do it in a way that the viewer can distinguish between the real bone and the bone that they create. That they can or can't. So that they can. Yes. Can distinguish. That's the current. It used to be that they were trying to Hide fool it. us. Sure. Perfection. Right? And so, sure. and this, this, and that's on the natural history side. From the art side, there's a whole um, school of thought and it varies from country to country. Um, whether, uh, you know, the, the rules of engagement. So, for example, we walked into the conservator to interview the conservator, and they were working on the frame of a painting. 
Um, they were um, restoring uh, some damage that had been created, but they were doing it in a way that would 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 work to do the repair, but not fix it in a way that you couldn't tell that it was broken. You could still see where you the repair was. You could still see where the repair was, hmm. but it would it wouldn't draw your eye to it. You know, but if you were looking for it, but if you're looking for it, you could see, oh, it had been repaired there. So there's this whole very intricate school of thought about how that process is supposed to work so that we're not trying to fool people on what the. So this whole question of authenticity and what is fake and what is real began to uh, permeate our creative process. And it's something we're already interested in. Uh, from the beginning of our our work is to you know what is real and you know how do we blur the line mm-hmm. from reality and fiction. Well, that I assume that that's a big part of the immersive experience, exactly. where when you go to the theater and you're an audience member in the theater, you are already unavoidably one step removed from reality. You are you've got this false thing in front of you. If you're in a movie theater, whether you're at a live theater, you have this this fourth wall, as we've talked Mm -hmm. about, and that you're already one step removed. It's not real. But immersive can feel much more real, like you're in it. You're still recreating a moment, though, and and it begs the question about our entire lives, what what is a real encounter? You know, like, we have have a lot of audience members that come to some of our programs and and not others. And a lot of our audience that that don't come to our immersive work and come to our other work say they're scared. I'm I'm afraid. You know, I don't want to be put on the the spot and I don't want to be touched. And I don't, you know, they think it may be like a haunted house. So they have this preconceived notion about about what it is. And they don't think that they could um, be a part of an immersive experience. And, And I always say, well, um, your life is an immersive experience. Did you wake up this morning with a script next to your bed on your nightstand? I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Did you write it the night before too? No, it just appears. Someone is it's, it's, is in control in that way. It's it's the writer elves. They just show up. <laughs> well, bless you, because that makes life a lot easier I when didn't you know say exactly what to do. It's all crap, but that's another story. <laughs> but we don't know what our life is going to be, and we don't know what the encounter with the barista is. But they have a script too. You know, the barista has to perform. They can't just like be like in the mood that they're in and be like, what do you want? You know, I don't have I'm not really feeling good today. They have to put on an energy. Hi, welcome. What can I get for you? I'm here to serve. It's a mask. We're all wearing masks all the time, you know, and so life is an immersive experience. It's it's a cabaret. old. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, man, that's bad. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So bad. It's good. But, you know, like um, so this idea of of what is authentic we can explore that for forever. You know, we could break that down forever. And it kind of gets back to this idea of criticism and our inability to hold a conversation, a, a discourse um, about about art in a way that doesn't keep the, you know, that, that allows us to grow from it but doesn't destroy us. I mean, we're such fragile beings, everybody, but artists especially, because we are putting ourselves out there. The, you know? the, the, wor- the word that, that I think gets lost most of the time is constructive. If, if you're having a conversation and, the, and the, uh, the banter has to do with constructive criticism, not just mean-spirited, I hate this, 
but yeah. here's why and here's what it could mm-hmm. be and so on. I think that that's where people get lost in it is that we've lost the constructive part of it. Yeah, well, but the, your version real... of constructive, you know, like where you come from te- of defines what you think is constructive and not. And you might come from a space that has nothing to do or no connection to what that other, other artist well, is putting forth. Well, and your construction could be damaging. Your audience is coming to it with whatever their life experience exactly. is. And they're bringing that to the table. And we have to be open and, and prepared for that. And so the, the actors that the interactors, the actors that are a part of immersive theater... Have are different from actors that that do traditional theater. They have to be, they have to be able to hold space for whoever shows up in front of them and try without judgment to accept where they are, so that there can be an encounter. Do you do you have to train them? I well, mean, training. We don't have a school or anything, but we we talk about it. You know, we we we. That's why we have audience come on the first day. But I also would say that you know the the actors that have done this work. Are are much more prone to be called upon again because they oh, that makes sense. They they uh, often possess the understanding and the experience of some of holding space for people that mm-hmm. that are uh, not scripted. I think that that is the biggest fear. Obviously, and it's if this then this. You know, if the if this person responds this way then you have to respond correct this way. me if i'm wrong the actors you're talking about are doing what every actor i think has as an ideal which is to be literally in the moment that's, that's right. exactly right so when we get back to this question of authenticity there's a there's an inherent value statement put on that right when something is authentic whatever that means whatever that means we say oh that's good it, when sure. when we say that person is authentic we mean unless they're that, authentically evil, then we don't want that to be good. But it's 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 they are what they are. <laughs> Tammy's disagreeing. I think I, I think they are what they are. I mean, I think that that is there's something that is at least yeah at least there's not it's not duplicitous. It's not well. This uh, binary of good and bad, like that child is throwing a tantrum. That is authentic for that child in the moment. Sure. Do we want that? N- no, not necessarily. But there is where that child is. It is about what you said before, like being present in the moment. That is the most difficult thing in the universe no doubt. for any person, artist or lawyer or you know, teacher, anyone walking down the street, can we be present for what is happening right now? Not what I want to happen, but what is actually happening right now. That is a challenge. Spectacularly difficult. Mm-hmm. And we we ask our our actors to tr- to try and do that, and they don't get the applause afterwards. You know, that that's interesting. They don't really get the recognition. No, but what you get, what you get is is far more. Um, monumental and 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 life changing than just some simple applause. That idea that we talked about in the beginning: look at me, look at me, look at me, clap for me. Mm-hmm. That's so small. That's so egocentric because it's all about me, right? Something that happens in an encounter when you have connected with another human being, and you know that they have been heard or have heard. Something happens. That that that's more meaningful than than applause. We we had uh, you know I mean and this is the difference. We say when we're as actors we came off stage and people are like oh you were this you were mm-hmm. that. Uh, now we get you know fourteen page emails about <laughs> I experienced this and it was about me and 
and there's a, there's a shift that's happening so that the audience member it's a gift i mean it's a gift in a way that that i've never uh ha, you know i've never experienced in all of my uh, days as an actor you know that they're they're that the audience feels so well cared for it, that it truly is life changing you know whether they're giggling all the way through it you know because they're or just crying. like you know or you know just because wow somebody took the time to figure this out for me you know and they've they've allowed space and there's a real sense of unknown when you go to immersives because the or at least the, the work that we we do you know there's this sense of I have no idea what's coming next. Well, you're unlikely to have read it in high school, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be completely unknown to you. You're really taking a risk. And getting back to this conversation about, you know, um, not being able to critique people because they they have, you know, they do it right out of the gate and they have nothing to learn. You know, there's a sense in our, our public discourse that we are coming at it from all that we know rather than all that we don't know. Mm. And so we're not <laughs> learning anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, there, we're, we've divorced ourselves from the mystery. You say of, it's a lack of curiosity? It's a lack yes. of curiosity. And this idea that we already have to know, that, that I have to have perfection, that I have to get it right. You know, this, this again, binary um, narrative um, where... Where when when we get something wrong or we change our mind, we're we're known as flip floppers, you know. We're not somebody that has that has had a, an experience that has that has taken what we thought we knew and shifted that, and now we think something else. Well, that's growth. This idea of the confirmation bias that you know we we especially now with our phones, you know, every every little um, you know alert on our phones is. It's confirming what we already know or what we already believe like. or what we are our opinions so that we can uh, have more fodder for for the people that we disagree with. Yes. And I feel like and more righteousness for where we stand. Mm-hmm. These extremes you know? of right and left, you know, it's like the the answer is always somewhere in the the middle you know there there it's about the conversation we need each other from an evolutionary standpoint to to further you know uh our chances of survival <laughs> and and that's that, a tough one and that is a real tough one and i feel like yeah. you know through the process of dodo and and all that we're listening to and hearing from the scientists in terms of where we are uh and and in essence you know the institution of the museum itself is under attack uh because it was it was it came to be through the you know the patriarchal you know industrialist you know um capitalist you know uh andrew carnegie andrew Andrew carnegie himself who was you know this this privileged white guy who got to go all around all over the world and was like well i'll bring one of those back and i'll bring one of these back and mm-hmm. and i'll be able to show you know pittsburgh for putting other cultures on display mm-hmm. and when you only take a piece of a culture and remove it from the culture and put it on display you're not getting the, the entire story certainly so not. As and we... so you think you might know 
but you don't. Well, part, part of what I think you're talking about has, has to do with the age-old issue of as people go from children to adults, they lose the sense of play yeah. and they lose the sense of what it is to be a child and that, mm. the freedom to welcome in what adults think of as sort of delusion or illusion mm. or whatever you want to think of it, but kids don't see it that way. Kids see their imaginary friends and so on. Mm. That's what I think that's what you're you're getting. Well, at. and getting us back to a place of curiosity yeah. about each other and asking authentic questions. What, the lack of wonder. Yeah. And it does get back to when I was talking about my vision of what adults were when I was a child. It was something I didn't want to be, you know? I mean, didn't want to be an adult. Yeah, I didn't want that. I didn't want that. I didn't. That's not what you you strive for, you know, to to live in pressure, to live in pain, like the freedom of being a kid. Now, we can't do that because we have responsibilities that adults have responsibilities that kids don't have. But where is it? That we lose the ability yeah. to to play, yeah. you know, um, that that we're allowed to, that we deserve that, that there is some freedom there. Well, it seems like y- you folks have figured out how to get back to a big part of it. And I, I think part of what your message is, is that why don't we all get back there? Yeah. Well, in some way, I mean, I think that, you know, we spend a lot of energy creating the the boundaries you know the the playground through which you know these are the artists that we assemble can play you're you're, you're taking people back in there you're p- permitting people to explore again in ways that they haven't done for years and years and years we're asking them to be present with us in this moment mm-hmm. and to be authentic with their response you know and that's hard for people to do because we we desperately want to get it right and this is not about right and wrong. Your experience is, is your experience. What you bring to the table will reflect what you take from the table, you know? That is, that you know, I think that's very profound. Um, uh, we have been going for a good hour and five minutes, yeah. believe it or not. <laughs> and so we're going to come toward the end of the show here. And I just, in your long experiences and mm. doing what you've done, do you have a particular experience that you can relate to us that's either quirky or funny or offbeat or oddball or or something unusual? I imagine you must. <laughs> yeah. Um I had something in mind that I was going to talk about, but I, I, I feel like I had this experience um, in Strata. I was um, a part of the creative team for Strata, but as it as it happens, a lot of the times when we build these things, we, we think so big and we build so much <laughs> that um, I become part of the show in in some way, <laughs> um, and so I was a voice in in the show, and and I had um, my room, quote unquote, was a phone, and I was holed up in a in a dingy sort of d- room way in the back where no one could see me, and I had um, a telephone and monitors in front of me, and I, everything was surveillance. Tele- television monitors. Yeah, yeah. Everything, every part of the experience was surveillance so we could see everyone for the safety of our actors and the safety of our um, patrons, and also as part of this sort of big brother kind of sensibility of, of what Strata was. And so um, I would watch 
my people, the people I was assigned to connect with. And when they would come past this phone, I would ring the phone. It was a, an old school phone booth. That yeah. It would ring when you walked past. Yeah, it was like a superhero, <laughs> a Superman phone booth. Mark Clayton Southers uh, let us borrow it for, for this. And we had it inside the nurse's station waiting room. So when I would see my person come down the hall, I would ring it at the appropriate time. And, and if they didn't pick it up themselves, the nurse would be like, could you could you get that for me? One of the <laughs> actors. And, and, and then that person would pick it up and I would know their name right away. And I would say to them, um, you know, oh, hi, Steve. Um, I'm sorry we got cut off earlier. Um, you know, and I would go into this voice and they would be like, who's this? And I'd be like, oh, you're so funny. <laughs> no, this is. I miss you. Um, I'm sorry I had to leave so abruptly, but I wanted to reconnect. <laughs> and I would ask them about their first time. <laughs> <laughs> Did you record these? I'm not saying. <laughs> but I would ask them in this way that would either totally offend them and they would hang up on me. And then I could see them go sit down and kind of sulk and get very furious. <laughs> that would make them giggle. Um, that would make them question. You know, lots of things happened. So I had to be prepared for people to tell me things that I didn't necessarily want to carry, you know, um, or like really sweet, funny stories, you know, or for people to get very angry at me and call me a name and, and then hang up. And I had this one kid that um, I picked up the phone and he immediately was titillated. He immediately was like, I'm in. I'm totally in. I only had three minutes with everybody. They didn't know that. But um, I had this, this finite amount of time. And so we pretty pretty much finished up the what we were doing in about 30 seconds because he told me everything I wanted to know right away, you know. And he was like, um, what do we do now? And I was like. I'm like in the back room, like uh, by myself in this room. I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to do? And he was like, you want me to take my clothes off? And I was like, you know, I'm in the back like, oh, my God. And was I'm he like, alone? Yeah. Well, he or was. thought not, he was alone. I mean, he's in a phone booth in a, in a, in a way, like a but nurse's station. Can, but people can see him. Yeah, yeah. People could walk by, could see him. And the nurse was right there. And I go, yeah. <laughs> and I kid you not. Within seconds, his shirt was off and his pants were around his oh ankles. And I'm just like, I'm like, you know, my heart's like, beating so fast. Please don't send my girlfriend yeah. in here. Please don't send yeah, my girlfriend like, in here. Yeah, he was with his girlfriend at this experience. And he was like, I hope, please don't let my girlfriend walk by. And I'm thinking like, dude, you know your girlfriend is here. What are you doing? You know, but you just don't know. I mean, I don't know. And like, you know. I'm like kind of left for like this is this is going someplace so fast. I don't know what I'm so far away physically from this kid. But the um so the nurse steps in and and she's like, Young man, young man, put your clothes back on and get out of that phone booth and yells at him, he puts his clothes back on and he you know, and he and he sort of and he and he leaves, you know, and he's and he's sitting there. And, you know, the that that's the weirdest thing that I think I could tell that's ever happened to me, but you know, this uh, this 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 openness of here we're offering something. I had no idea that 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 would happen, you know. But that is part of human nature, you of know. Of course, and we have to be open for for that to to happen. And <laughs> speak about look at me, look at me, look at me. Be careful what you ask for. Exactly right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's 
<laughs> Do you have one? Well, I mean, I think we'll we'll stick with Strata just because it's it's uh, it's one of those that's. Uh, you know, it was, it was the very first one, yeah. and, and what we, you know, we were really we interested learned a lot in since then. <laughs> creating this, this, this. Well, blurring the line between fiction and reality was one of the things, and and so one of the taglines with Strata was, um, you know, you're still in the experience, <laughs> and and uh, and so that sort of you know the the most obvious way that that you know when you when you left there you were you were still when you left strata you were still thinking like are is this still part of it mm-hmm. you know uh, oh, so you that's, never because it started outside that's insidious it started in the city <laughs> which in was exciting though oh, for sure. people because they started looking at their everyday surroundings like all the possibilities of here course. you know and so you're sort of looking at it the the everyday through this you, lens. And if you've ever read 1984, mm. you're really not sure. Yeah, are you? yeah. Well, yeah, and we've done that yeah, as a midnight, that radio, midnight radio uh, show. But yeah, so uh, in fact, one of the actors. This is this is my story. One mm-hmm. of our actors who was in 1984, as a matter of fact, but <laughs> he was also in Strata, and he was one of our. Uh, are, he was one of the agents we called on the outside. So there was a series, you know, there, there was a series of um, gates, you know, really that you would go through. You would start on this old defunct bus, bus stop on the corner, and you were instructed to look for the, the the gentleman with the red hat and ask him, "Is this the bus to eye consciousness?" So. Strata was a strategic training, research, and testing agency for this corporation called Gate. And Gate's, um, their product was eye consciousness with the little eye. And the only way to achieve eye consciousness was to go through Strata and be refitnessed. Uh, and it took place at a, a former uh, Bally's Total Fitness, uh, which was 24,000 square feet. It was a huge... Uh, You're on 6th, six, yes? Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you would show up at this defunct bus stop in the middle of town, and uh, through a series of agents, they would lead you d- to this alleyway uh, in this metal door and a, and a brick wall, you know, uh, and you would enter and your experience would, uh, would begin and you'd, you'd uh, show up. And, you know, so this one particular uh, actor was two years later, you know, after the experience was over, was in line at the grocery store. <laughs> And he heard these two ladies in front of him talking about Strata. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he couldn't believe it that, that they were still talking about it after two years. They were, and they were just recalling how just incredible it was, the experience of, of really not knowing when it was over. <laughs> and he leaned over and he said, you're still in the experience. <laughs> and left. And then he just walked out. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Isn't that amazing? Uh, that uh, is amazing. We never got to hear how that sort of landed, but I, I can only imagine that was one of oh. these. But that's part of it. We don't get to hear, like because there's no applause. We don't get to hear what people are actually, how it's affected them, unless they write to us. So largely, 
we're sort of sending this energy out into the into the world and people are capturing it in the way that they however they want to and we don't really know unlike and I'll, I'll leave on one other story that's very similar to that uh i <laughs> was right. i am one of the things that i do for sort of sanity's sake is i do a lot of camping and a lot of solo camping i like to get out into the woods by myself and just uh, be quiet mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and in, in, uh, one of the things that I do to, to get out when nobody's out there is go winter camping. So, uh, I am out at, in the woods and it's just about dusk and I'm all set up and I got my fire going and, and, uh, and it's winter time. And, um, so you can hear for miles around, uh, it's very still and quiet. Nobody's out there. And all of a sudden, I hear these footsteps in the snow. And I'm thinking to myself, who the heck is out here? And I can't see them. They're sort of around the bend. And I, they're getting closer and closer. And and then all of a sudden, into view comes this couple. And uh, this woman is sort of walking in front, taking the lead. And she starts approaching my camp. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what? is happening you know so i kind of walk toward them you know to kind of protect my camp and and just be like can i help you with something and she says oh we're just i'm just so interested in you know the fact that people are out here and i just wanted to see what you know what your setup is like how are you you know and so i sort of invite them into camp and this guy that's coming behind her he looks at me and he says, you're God. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-oh, we got <laughs> What have I done? You know, this I let it. these people. <laughs> this like, is how it ends. I'm like, excuse me? And he said, you're from Strata. <laughs> and I was like, what? And this is five, four or five years later. That's right? hilarious. And I said, yes. And he said, because I was the last person people would see when they came out. And they would come through, uh, you know, the uh, tunnel of light uh, that would lead them back to the bar, which was where they met the rest of their team, you know, the, the, the people that they came with. And they and I was there waiting for them, you know. And I would always ask how their refitnessing experience was. And they'd come out of the tunnel, um, much to like those um, airline... Um, security gates where you have to put your hands up and they blow air on you. you So you sort of come through that experience. The door opens and your theme song is playing. Um, (laughs) And people would often get very overwhelmed by that moment. And and I would be there and and sort of ask them questions and and give them a a beverage of their choice. And and they would sit and, and decompress uh as they waited for their their partners or their their friends to come through uh to meet them and uh so he recognized me from that moment and uh but that was one of the called you god called me god (laughs) and i was totally freaked out by it and so it was sort of a reversal of uh, you know where i was put back into the experience that i created (laughs) which was it was 
pretty off-putting and, and wonderful. Actually. I don't think you can find too many people in the theater that can have these experiences. Those are, <laughs> that's phenomenal. Um, okay, so do you have one particular piece of advice or a tip for anybody that's starting out, either in this type of business you're in or some other part of the theater world, um, that, that might help them to get a little further down the road? You know, I, I think about, like, what what I wish I would have I was told, you know, what my little self from 20 years ago when I was first, um, you know, entering into professional theater world. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't think I would have been able to he- hear it, but I'll just say it anyway. Um, well, you know, something someone did say to me was have patience. And I wasn't able to hear that. That sounded like just wait. <laughs> but what I what I would say is um, have humility. Humility. Yeah, like um, be able to to learn. Always be learning. Be curious. Um, be honest about who you are and where you are. Mm-hmm. You know, like be kind. Um, um, listen. You know. Don't wait for the invitation to create. That's a big one. You know, um, develop your voice. Laugh. Don't take yourself too seriously. Mm-hmm. This is about humility, you know, like it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to fail. It's that, actually great to that's fail. A, that's a frequent theme on um, things, on the people that people say on the show, which is that it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. That in it's fact, that's what, that's what you learn from. Yeah, it's necessary. Otherwise, you get nowhere. Yeah. George Bernard, I, I've said this quote before, George Bernard Shaw's famously said, a man who makes no mistakes makes nothing at all. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. Well, yeah. it's that right, that phenomenon while you're writing, you know, where you're, you're, you know, you write the same sentence over and over and over and over again to get the perfect sentence and you never get the paragraph. Oh, oh, it, oh it gets worse. <laughs> if you work, if you work in, as I did for 20 years in the commercial world of writing in Los Angeles, mm. um, you wind up, uh, you know, 10 years in going, I've written this story before <laughs> and you're just rewriting the same story mm. over and over again because that's, that's what you're, yeah. that's what you're about, you know? Yeah. So, um, I think that's very valuable. Did, did Jeffrey, do you have a separate piece of advice? Well, I mean, I think that it, it's sort Don't of... go out in the woods alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely go out no, in the woods. Definitely. You know, I, I just think that, you know, one of the things that I learned early on is that, that, that things take three times longer than you think mm-hmm. they're going to take. Mm-hmm. And that it really, the 10 years is nothing mm-hmm. when you're talking about something uh, like art, you know. <laughs> um, you know, these these trees that, that surround us, the big oak tree, you know, it takes... It takes a long time. Decades. Decades. Thousands and it's those, of years. Thousands of years. Sure. I think that that, that um, you know, we live in an age where everything is so immediate mm. and we think we know something because we've seen it on our phones, you know, a picture of it or, you know, and that, you know, I, I just would say to sort of echo what Tammy said is, is patience, uh, and then all, the thing that I always say for us and as a reminder is that always be beginning, you know. Um, and I'd say that's yeah. those are my two caveats. I, I would say that, you know, all, all of your advice was just really 
right on the money for what people need to hear and all and very very challenging for people to hear as tammy said she wouldn't have heard this advice when she was a young person but i think it percolates in it Mm -hmm. it seeps in yeah and uh, i think that people need to hear it whether they accept it for now or not well this has just been a great hour and 22 minutes believe it or not um and i really thank you both for coming in today it's been um a great pleasure well our pleasure yeah thank you steve for having us we appreciate it and so we've come to the end of today's story beat if you like this podcast please take a moment to give us a comment rating or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to your support helps us bring more great episodes to you this podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.